Okay, so uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 5. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to go to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Uncleanliness, uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Well, friends, it's uh, really lovely to be with you and to be in a part of the world that knows how to do winter properly. Where I come from, we don't really do it properly, but I've noticed that you guys do. Ooh, it's not actually cold at the moment, but uh, it's, it's nice to hear that, to feel the chill out there. Now, uh, please keep that part of the Bible open uh, to Samuel chapter 11. And uh, if, you li- if, you're one of the pe- if you're the sort of person who likes to follow some notes uh, on pages 2 and 3 uh, of the booklet, uh, there are some notes there. I think uh, one of the most difficult lessons for human beings to learn is that we actually are not up to the task of ruling the world. Have you noticed how again and again we're deceived into thinking that a new leader, uh, a new government, uh, a change of the political system, a new economic program, a change in foreign policy or something will provide the answers that the world and its communities so obviously desperately need. And again, and again, and again, we are disappointed. The disappointments that inevitably follow, however, do not seem to have the power to teach us that in fact the resources of humanity are simply inadequate to solve the dilemmas of humanity. We just don't seem to be able to learn that. Now, of course, I don't want to overstate this. Of course, I'm not suggesting for a moment that we are incapable of doing anything worthwhile. It's perfectly clear that people of goodwill achieve a great deal. There are many examples of human suffering being alleviated in various ways by the actions, decisions, the policies, the inventions, the initiatives taken by men and women whose commitment and abilities are impressive and wonderful, and every such effort is worthwhile. And we ought to be people who thank God for doctors and scientists and politicians and many others who, in fact, do good. We should pray for them. We should encourage them. We should support them. Those of us who have the opportunity to do such good work should know that it's very valuable. But... The inadequacy of what we do is or at least should be obvious. The good we manage to do is only ever patchy and partial. On a global scale, 
poverty may well be reduced. And wouldn't that be good? But does anyone really think it will ever be eliminated? Certain injustices may be addressed, but will there ever be a community in which no one is treated unfairly? Some diseases may be cured, but does anyone really think that sickness will ever be utterly eradicated? Does anyone realistically hope for a world in which lies are no longer told? Conflict between people is unknown. Greed no longer drives the economy. Selfishness no longer dominates human behaviour. Do we dare to dream of a world in which trust is universal? Everyone trusts everyone else. And peace is everywhere, no conflict, none at all. All relationships are harmonious. And rather than being greedy and selfish, the thing you notice about everybody in our human in our societies is the generosity. Kindness, the mark of all human interactions. Does anyone dream of such a world? And I think the really strange thing is that the unreality of such a dream is matched by its desirability. Who would not want such a world if only it were possible? Now, when Christian people pray, your kingdom come as the Lord Jesus Christ taught us, we ought to understand we are praying for such a world. However, the prayer is actually realistic because it's a prayer, not a dream. It's based on God's promise, not on human optimism. This means that our hope for such a world doesn't rest on the potential of human beings to bring it about. When we actually believe God's promise, we're trusting him. We're believing that he is good enough, wise enough, powerful enough to do what he's promised. Over these couple of days, as Cameron has uh, indicated, we're going to hear a very small part of the story of King David. King David, although um, you mightn't guess it from the little part that we're reading, but uh, in actual fact, King David was a great and good man. He was one of the greatest and one of the best men to have ever lived. If you wanted to, uh, you could do this sort of thing if you've got a bit of a knowledge of history and uh, great people in history. If you wanted to make a short list of the greatest people to have ever lived, the best people to have ever lived, uh, I wonder who'd be on your short list of, uh, you know, whatever your knowledge of history is, mine isn't great, but uh, <clears throat> I want to suggest that if you, if you really knew your stuff and you, you, you knew about the history of the world and, and, and great and good people that there have been, King David would be on your list, on your short list. In those far-off days, and we're talking about round about 1000 BC, so about 3,000 years ago, 
King David was God's king over God's people in Old Testament times, the Old Testament nation of Israel. So that David's kingdom was in fact God's kingdom. And God was with King David, God was for King David, and consequently King David was righteous, he was faithful, he was kind, he was good. And more than that, he was successful in everything he put his hand to. You read David's story, it begins in 1 Samuel chapter 16, right through to 2 Samuel chapter 10, just before the bit we're getting to today, and you'll see what I mean. At one point, the Bible historian writes, so David reigned over all Israel and David did, listen to this, David did justice and righteousness for all the people. Could you say that of any political leader that you've ever known? They did justice and righteousness for all the people. That's a literal translation of 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15, if you want to note down where it is. What a king he was. He was an extraordinary figure. What a man he was. He was an extraordinary man. So that it's no accident that the very first sentence of the New Testament introduces Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ, the son of David. In very important ways, the greatest and best man to have ever lived in this world was anticipated in King David. And those who knew Jesus, those who saw him, those who actually were there at the time, as well as those who wrote the records of his life, saw it. They saw that what was happening in Jesus' life was something that, in a sense, had happened before, a thousand years before. And friends, that's what makes the story of David one of the most important stories in world history. And it's a story that is going to help us to see what it is that God has promised and what it will take for God to do it. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, which is the part we're going, of David's story we're going to step into, there's a bit of a shock. For we discover that David was, after all, after all the goodness, after all the greatness we've seen him, in him, was a flawed human being like all of us. It really is a shock. If you've been reading the story, we haven't had time to read the story right up to this point, but if you read the story right up to this point, then you turn the page and you read chapter 11, you say, the shock is intensified by the genuine greatness of goodness that this man has displayed. Right up there, short list of great and good people that have ever lived in the world. And then... Genesis 11. <clears throat> if, you're a, if you're a person who reads your Bible, and I hope you are, and, and, and you're interested in the, in, in the whole of the Bible and how it all sort of works together, Genesis, uh, two, sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 11 is a bit like Genesis chapter 3, the fall of Adam. After all the goodness of the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 2. In King David's fall, like Adam's fall, we see, in fact, the damaged and weak human nature that we share with him. 
Now, what we're going to be reading is disturbing. I find it disturbing because it is like looking in a mirror. You see, we human beings are not up to the task of ruling the world. And goodness me, you you might want to admit that fairly quickly, but we're not even up to the task of ruling our little bit of the world perfectly, as we would love to do. We can't get rid of conflict within our families, within our relationships. We can't, we, 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 we can't, we can't establish that good life that, that we all recognise would be. We're, we're not up to doing it. But we're not up to doing it for the same reason that David turned out, out to be not up to being God's king. Let me try and set the scene. The background to 2 Samuel 11 is the conflicts that you can read about in 2 Samuel chapter 10 where King David was, in fact, at the height of his greatness. And if you read 2 Samuel chapter 10 very carefully, I think you'll observe at the height of his goodness. Unfortunately, um, uh, I hate starting a series just like this, but I'll do it anyway. Uh, The beginning of verse 1 is a little bit difficult uh, and the translators have had trouble with it. Uh, This happens sometimes in the Bible. Uh, You'll be aware of that. Sometimes it's picked up in the footnotes. Sometimes it's not. Uh, It's never very important. Uh, What the Bible teaches is never uh, actually obscured by a translation problem. Uh, It's only for pedants like me to even bother about these things. Uh, But I've put a quite literal translation of the first bit of verse 1 on your notes. So just follow it there. And at the return of the year... At the same time that the kings had gone out, a year earlier in chapter 10, David sent Joab. That's how I think it should read. In other words, it was a year after the troubles that you hear about in chapter 10 began. At the return of the year means when that time of year had come round again. And so if you've got, uh, as you will have, uh, a different kind of translation in front of you, Uh, I would not read into the first sentence the idea that at that time of year kings should have been out fighting. There's no evidence for that. And David was rather slack because he was resting in Jerusalem when kings should have been out fighting. Uh, some Some of the translations suggest that that's what's going on. I don't think so. What was going on at the time? Well, Uh, We read uh, again in verse 1, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. That's the capital city uh, of the Ammonites. Uh, This, in fact, uh, again, to understand this, we won't go into the details, but this is a resumption of the campaign that had been concluded a year or so earlier Uh, Back in chapter 10, uh, David now sent Joab again to complete the task that he'd begun so effectively a year earlier. We're not going to follow that story just now. There is another, actually much more important story to be told. It's about what happened in Jerusalem while the army was besieging the city of Rabah, about 60 kilometres to the east. So we're taken quickly back to Jerusalem. You see the end of verse 1, but David remained in Jerusalem. Why would that be interesting? What interest could there possibly be in the king back home in his royal city? Surely the really exciting stuff is happening over at Rabah. Well, what happened in Jerusalem is going to turn out to be a disaster greater than anything that happened at Rabah. Look at verse 2. One evening, 
David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Uh, it wasn't the evening, really. It was uh, late afternoon is what the, what, what the original means. The sun was sinking low in the sky over Jerusalem. Uh, the shadows were lengthening and our attention is now drawn to the king. Quite a contrast to the troops menacing the Ammonites and besieging Rabah 60 kilometres away. David had been resting on his bed, an afternoon nap. And now he stood up, stretched and took a stroll on the flat roof of the palace, enjoying the cool evening air. You take in the scene, it's relaxed, it's casual, it's calm and it's safe. It's rather reassuring if you're reading this story carefully and imagining what's going on. It's reassuring to see that this great and good king, he's actually far from the dangers of the battlefield. There were a number of times in David's life when the people actually said, no, we don't want you to go out to battle. Uh, It really is important that we don't lose you. Safe he was in the city that protected him. But King David was not safe. The walls of Jerusalem were no protection against himself. The disaster we're going to hear about right through this chapter began with something that happened, something he glimpsed as he strolled high above uh, the buildings around his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. The original language emphasises that she was beautiful to look at. This was David's point of view. As his eyes lighted on the naked woman, literally, the woman was very good to see. I need to say straight away that there is no suggestion here that the woman was acting improperly or indiscreetly. She was only visible because David was up on the palace roof. Furthermore, We'd want to say that at this point, David hasn't done anything wrong. The chance sighting of a beautiful naked woman is, it was accidental. And indeed, if you had followed the story of David from way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16 up to this point, and you'd seen all the good things that he'd done, you might well anticipate that this will prove yet another occasion in which David will display his surprising kindness and goodness. He'll do the right thing, won't he? He is a good man. And I take it we all know what David should have done. He should have averted his gaze and got on with something else. We also know what David should not have done. He should not have continued to look at the woman and foster lustful thoughts. I hope, friends, that you can sort of sense the awkwardness of the situation. I I hope that we haven't been completely desensitised by the movies and the TV and the internet and all the rest. I hope not. You see, since Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, human nakedness has been awkward. It's sort of right for it to be awkward. You see, it's because our sexual desires like everything else about us, have been distorted by our rejection of God. 
Our rejection of God has made us self-centred people. That is, selfish people. And our self-centredness, our selfishness, has made our sexual desires, like everything else about us, selfish. We now find it very difficult to direct our sexual desires as they were intended, for self-giving in the union of a man and a woman in marriage and for the procreation of children into the security of a loving family. Instead, sex has been turned into a selfish pleasure more to be taken than given. And as in every other aspect of life, you can talk about how we speak, you can talk about how we do everything, as in every other aspect of life, we all find it very difficult indeed, very difficult indeed, to escape from selfishness. We find it difficult to escape from selfishness in our sexual desires and behaviour. And the power of our sexual natures, powerful because of their remarkable purpose, makes this a challenging aspect of life for all of us. And in this, King David was like us all. It was an awkward situation up there on the palace roof. Did he turn his attention away from the woman that he'd seen? Well, no. Look at verse 3. And David sent someone to find out about her. And this is the information he received. The man said, she is Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You notice David learned three things about the beautiful woman that he'd seen from the rooftop. First, her name, Bathsheba. And with that name, the woman became known to David as a particular person, Bathsheba. A little ironically, Bathsheba means daughter of an oath. Second, she was the daughter of Eliam. Uh, you, we know from elsewhere in the story that Eliam was one of David's uh, crack troops, one of his heroic soldiers who served him faithfully. Uh, we know from elsewhere as well that Eliam's father, so Bathsheba's grandfather, was David's highly esteemed advisor, Ahithophel. In other words, Bathsheba belonged to a family who loyally served the king and was close to the king. But third, and most important, the woman David had seen from his roof was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She was married. Her husband, Uriah, was probably what we would call a permanent resident in Israel. Uh, and he was a loyal servant to King David. He was also one of the crack troops. And he was among those that David had sent to fight the Ammonites. So, Bathsheba's husband was out of town. Bear with me in our slow reading of this story because I think this is a story that we need to take slowly and see it unfold. What David should now have done is even clearer than before, is it not? He knew God's law. If anyone knew God's law, David knew God's law. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife. Certainly, you shall not commit adultery. 
And everything that David had learned about the woman that he'd seen should have told him that his interest in her must go no further. So what did David do? Look at verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her. Uh, Literally it says, and he took her. In fact, in three stark clauses, we're told what David used his messengers to do. First, uh, there in verse 4, to get her, he took her. It may not have been physically coercive, it may have been, it may, but it may simply have been the power of his position that he wielded messengers from the king, summoning Bathsheba. Uh, what else she, could she do? Either way, he took her. Second, she came to him. Not that I think she had any choice in the matter. Her husband was away. How could she have refused the royal summons? David was the king. And then thirdly, he slept with her. Literally, he lay with her. And so, David had coveted his neighbour's wife. Now he took what he coveted. He returned to the bed from which he had innocently risen a few hours earlier. No longer innocent. The extraordinary brevity with which this is described in verse 4 is brutal. He sent, he took, she came, he lay. We don't hear of any conversation. We don't hear any expressions of affection. We're told nothing of the emotions or the thoughts of either person. All we see is the acts. And we are stunned. We ought to be. Perhaps we find ourselves having questions that the text before us refuses to answer. Do you find you're doing that sometimes when you're reading the Bible? All sorts of questions come to mind and the Bible writer doesn't give us the answers. Why is that? Questions that come to mind might might be along these lines. Can we somehow account for David's out-of-character actions? Is this the David we've been reading about, that, that if we'd been reading the whole story, where we've seen over again how kind and good and self-sacrificial and... Is it the same man? Was he perhaps under unusual stress? Were there difficulties at home? Was he feeling unappreciated? Was he in the middle of a midlife crisis? I think it's about the right time for him to have midlife crisis, but I don't know whether you had midlife crisis a thousand BC. I think they were a recent invention, aren't they? Did he struggle with the temptation? Did Bathsheba offer resistance? Was she complicit? Was she more enthusiastic? Did she encourage him? You can ask all those questions, but none of those questions is of any interest to the Bible writer. They're all eclipsed by the fact of what David did and his responsibility for what he did. The questions we want to ask are understandable because I hope if you're reading and hearing this story sensitively, we are all too aware that we share the weakness of David's human nature. 
Now, whether or not we have fallen just as David fell, we understand his action. If we're at all, at all sensitive, we sympathise. Given the circumstances of the opportunity, at least we can imagine ourselves doing what David did. Interestingly, the account of what David did contains a number of very subtle reminders in vocabulary and ideas to what happened in the Garden of Eden. Uh, back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, you could read, don't look it up now, but you could read, and the woman saw, it was good, a delight to the eyes, to be desired, and she took and she ate. Now we hear David saw a woman. She was good to see. He desired her and he took her and he lay with her. So David did what Adam and Eve did. He was ruled by his desires rather than God's good word. Now, friends, let's think for a moment about our reaction to this story, to this point. We've got a little bit more to go but, uh, the, the, this morning, but let's just think about this for a moment. Here we are living in the Western world um, after the last half century, a bit more, where our world, our culture, has embraced something that is uh, often called sexual freedom. Uh, it's been a revolution, it's been a huge revolution, almost as big as any revolution in social history. And by this uh, expression, uh, sexual freedom, uh, our society uh, generally means freedom to act sexually in any way we may desire, with any person we may choose. There are two generally accepted provisos, and they are that no one should ever be coerced against his or her will, and no one should be hurt. But that is for many, most, I might say, in our society and our cultures, the only accepted boundary of sexual behaviour. No one must ever be coerced. No one must be hurt. Provided, therefore, that Bathsheba freely consented, which may or may not have been the case, and provided David didn't use the power of his position to coerce his consent, that's a bit harder to believe, provided he didn't hurt her, we simply don't know about that, many today would say, what harm was done? Really? What harm was done? And I want to tell you, without giving away, every, giving away too much, before this chapter is over, we will all see that a great deal of harm was done. But it is worth noting that our world and our society is terribly, terribly deceived in this matter of sexual freedom. As it's understood these days, the idea robs sex of its profound and wonderful purposefulness. You see, in the name of freedom, our society has emptied sex of its goodness. The boundaries that God places on our sexual behaviour are there to protect the wonderful, powerful goodness of sex. True sexual freedom is when sex is freed from self-centred lust and able to accomplish its brilliant and unselfish purpose of binding a man and his wife joyfully together in marriage. And that is so good. 
We're not allowed to see it these days. We're not allowed to talk about it this day, these days. It, it, it sort of sends it out of public discourse, but it is so good. Friends, have you seen uh, a husband and a wife in a good marriage that has gone for years and years and years and years? They've stuck together. They've cared for each other. You see them in their older age still loving each other and caring for each other. And the, 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 Have you seen that? We don't talk about it very much, and that's fine. We shouldn't talk about it very much, but we're going to talk about it now. Sex has made that possible. Sex is, is God's gift that has, that has made that kind of relationship between a man and a woman possible. Yeah, we mess up, think all sorts of things, but, but that goodness, don't lose sight of that goodness. And the boundaries that the Bible puts around our sexual behaviour are not just sort of legalistic rules to stop you having fun. No, they're protecting that purpose, that our sexual natures can actually achieve the purpose for which we've been given. It's a brilliant purpose, a brilliantly good purpose. And as our society loses sight of that, something, I might say, that almost every society in the history of the world has recognised, you don't have to be Christian to get this, this is part of God's creation that has been recognised in almost every... And somehow in the last 15 years, we've become cleverer uh, I fear for the consequences. Well, let me, uh, we, we better get to the end of this uh, little bit of the story that we're looking at this morning. Um, I very carefully didn't ask Cameron what time I had to finish, but um, about half past 10? Okay, right, okay, thank you, Cameron. I'll just wind my clock back. Uh, I'm on Sydney time, I'm on Sydney time. <coughs> okay, all right. At this point, we're given a, a, a funny little piece of information that is put in brackets, quite rightly, uh, in our translations. You see it there at the end of verse 4, in the middle of verse 4. Uh, now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. What an odd thing to be saying. Uh, in Bible narratives, one of the tricks that the Bible writers often use is to hold back a piece of information, doesn't t don't tell you that, and then they drop it into the story at a particular point uh, for dramatic effect. And here we have actually the explanation of Bathsheba's bathing earlier on. It was a matter of holiness. Uh, she was purifying herself, literally making herself holy in a strange Old Testament way of the book of Leviticus. Uh, Bathsheba's bathing had been a ritual cleansing following her monthly period. It's all set out in Leviticus chapter 15. If you want to get the details, we don't want them now, do we? The importance of that little piece of information is going to be clear uh, in a few moments, but notice the contrast between the woman who had been pursuing holiness in this peculiar Old Testament way and King David, who pursued something else altogether. Well, the act of adultery was over. David's lust had been satisfied. He had taken what he coveted. And we read at the end of verse 4, then she went back home. Now, I have no idea whether David had further plans for this little affair, but I'm sure that he thought that uh, Bathsheba returning home concluded things, at least for now. Whether or not he felt remorse or guilt, we're not told. doesn't really matter. 
He had every reason in his mind to think he had taken what he wanted and there need be no consequences. You ever done that? Done something that you know was wrong. But you've done it, turn the page, move on, there needn't be any consequences. Well, there were consequences in this case. Several weeks passed. We hear nothing of the emotions of either David or Bathsheba through that period. The time is passed over without comment except for the briefest possible statement of the immediate consequence of what happened. See verse 5, the woman conceived. And now, of course, we see the relevance of the bit of information we were told about her recent period. The paternity of the child she conceived is beyond doubt. And then we read, she sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. A little piece of news that shattered the illusion that David was in control of events. He wasn't. Well, that's as far as we're going in the story right now. We're going to pick up the story uh, later this afternoon, but let's take a moment to reflect on what we've learned so far. It's certainly right for us to reflect on the moral lessons of this incident. You see, if a great and good man like David, and I've tried to emphasise, you read the story, I'm sure you'll get the same impression. I mean, David is the man who wrote most of the Psalms. That's the guy we're talking about. And if a great and good man like David can fall morally and as spectacularly as this, and we'll see how spectacular is later this afternoon when we see the story unfold, we must all acknowledge the danger that we are to ourselves. I venture to suggest that there's not one person uh, right here now who is as great or as good as King David was. And David's safety from external threats, just like our safety from external threats that we can secure for ourselves with wealth and prosperity and health care and this, that and the other, does not secure us from the flaws of our fallen nature. We are all capable of crossing proper moral boundaries for the sake of short-sighted selfish desires. And those of us in any kind of position of power must pay particular attention here. We very, very easily use power over others not to serve but to take. This applies to all sorts of aspects of life, but it does apply particularly to sexual behaviour. The boundaries of sexual behaviour given to us by the Bible are not to be despised, not to be disregarded, not to be taken lightly, not to be regarded as old-fashioned, They are good. They are profoundly good. Their purpose is to protect true sexual freedom. Witness David's folly and take whatever steps are necessary for you to flee from sexual immorality. And again, those with power to exert must take special care. Let me take it a step further, however. Listen to the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I actually have come to think that Jesus was thinking of David when he said those words. I can't prove it. It might be right, but it wouldn't be be surprising, would it? Even if we have not participated in conduct like King David's, we share his deep flaws. Our hearts, like his heart, are impure. Listen to James. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives for, it brings forth death. If a great and good man like King David can be brought down by his own weakness, then what hope can there be for any of us? What hope can there be for any of us? And the extraordinary answer to that question is also found in the story of David. Because God's promise that the kingdom will come, the kingdom we were sort of reflecting about at the beginning this morning, that promise was made to who? It was made to David. It spoke of a son of David whose kingdom would be secure forever. You find the promise back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll hear it uh, later over this weekend. The New Testament message is that this son of David has come. And the remarkable thing about him is that unlike David and unlike the rest of us, he was without sin. The references for this are, uh, are all on your notes. You can look them up later on. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was in every way pure. He was holy. He was innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. Unlike David and unlike the rest of us, he was completely obedient to God. Thank God for Jesus. David's greater son. Because he's the one who's made it possible for us to find forgiveness and safety from enemies greater than any external threat. By his death for our sins and his resurrection to new life, we've been set free from sin and become slaves of God. And the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. Friends, we need Jesus. We need a king who can deal with what David was unable to deal with. We need a king who can deal with what none of us is able to deal with. David wasn't good enough. We are not good enough. David wasn't strong enough. We are not strong enough. David wasn't wise enough. We are not wise enough. Jesus is. Let's pray together.